I did anticipate that our quarterly business meeting would be relatively short this evening, so I planned that we would continue our series through Zechariah this evening. That The section we're coming to tonight is really a great text for us to wrap up this joy-filled day of worship that we've had with the, the baptisms this morning, celebrating the salvation that God has given not only those who were baptized, but the rest of us as well. It's a joy-filled day, and this text is great to go along with that. Now, I won't continue reviewing all the background that we have to our passage tonight. I've done that for the last three sermons in this. This is our fourth sermon in the series, so if you can't remember what's going on in Israel at this time, go back and listen to those. They're all available online. But I will remind you, we are in the middle of a series of eight visions that, that Zechariah received during the, the night of the 15th of February in the year 519 B.C. For five months in Zechariah's time, after a, a sinful pause of 15 years, for five months the Israelites who had returned from the exile had been rebuilding the, the temple in Jerusalem. The, the people had committed themselves to the project, demonstrated their commitment to God, and, and God in turn is demonstrating his commitment by giving these eight visions to the city or to the people through Zechariah, really showing some stupendous things that he has in store for the, the country, for the people, for his people. We've looked at the first three of the visions that Zechariah received and from those three, there have been at least three major points already. One, God remains aware and in control of what's happening in his world. The, the angel of the Lord, a, a pre-incarnate Christ, has been prominent in the early visions, and he's aware of what's happening. Two, the, the enemies of Israel will suffer the, the judgment of God's wrath. They'll suffer because of their rejection of God, and they'll suffer judgment because of their enmity toward Israel. That point's been made clear. The angel of the Lord will see to it that justice is served. And then three, the third main point we've seen is that Israel remains God's people. The exile did not change that at all. They remain God's people, and, and they can look forward to a day when God will dwell personally among them, ensuring that they will be prosperous, that they will be the center of his program. Uh, of course, we have understood as we've looked at the first three visions that much of what God is showing Zechariah here in 519 B.C. remains future from our perspective as well. It's far in the future. He's looking to the end of time, the millennial kingdom, when the angel of the Lord will return as the victorious Davidic king, Jesus Christ, sitting on his throne. That is yet to come. So we look at 519 B.C. being way in the past, but there's still future things to come, and all of that's been in these visions. Tonight, we're going to look at the fourth vision Zechariah received. This one, as you can see on the screen there, is recorded in the third chapter of the book. This vision is another one that, that really gives a grand picture for the nation of Israel. The, the main idea that comes through in a very glorious fashion as we will work our way through the vision is that God's grace alone ensures Israel's destiny. That's what Israel can lean on. God's grace alone ensures Israel's destiny. In the first three visions, Zechariah saw something. That's where the vision comes from. He saw something. Then he asked questions about what he saw, and he had this angel that was standing nearby, an interpretive angel that, that 
explained what he was looking at. Well, this vision tonight is different. It doesn't have those components. Instead, Zechariah hears and interacts directly with the, the angel of the Lord right from the beginning. He not only sees the angel of the Lord, he, he interacts with him. We'll look at the vision in two sections this evening. In the first five verses, we have God's gracious cleansing of Israel, his gracious cleansing. Remember, God's grace alone ensures Israel's destiny. Well, it begins with his gracious cleansing of the nation. There's a lot that happens in the first five verses, so let's begin with verse 1 of chapter 3 and read those. Then he showed me, that would be this angel, showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. This is, not a, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. So the vision begins as, as Zechariah sees Joshua. Now, this is not the Joshua of the book of Joshua. This is Joshua, the high priest at the time of Zechariah. He came back with the, the exiles along with Zerubbabel to serve in the position of high priest. So Zechariah sees Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord, the, the, the pre-incarnate son of God, this pre-incarnate Christ. Joshua is standing there before him, and in that standing before the Lord, that, that depicts Joshua as being in his official priestly capacity. He, his role as priest was to stand before the Lord for the people. And so we see him standing before the Lord. Surprisingly, Zechariah also sees Satan, God's archenemy, the, the great accuser of God's people. In fact, you probably know the Hebrew word Satan just means adversary or accuser. That, but when you have the, the article in front of it in the original language, the Satan, it, it's the arch enemy, it's the prominent one. That's being referred to as this person. This. Well, Zechariah sees Satan and, and he notices Satan is standing at the right hand of the Lord. Well, that, that places Satan in the traditional place of someone who's about to bring a legal accusation in court. Satan is standing in his position as the accuser, ready to bring an accusation against Joshua. And Zechariah surmises that's why he's there. He's there for the purpose of accusing Joshua. So let's consider the grounds of the accusation. Satan's going to make an accusation. What are the grounds? What can he accuse Joshua of? Because before he speaks, we're, we're told in verse 2 that that. The angel of the Lord, it's a little hard because we have the Lord used multiple times. The angel of the Lord says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. So before Satan can utter an accusation of any kind, the Lord rebukes him. And for that reason, we don't hear Satan make an accusation. But we can certainly, from what we're told, gather what the grounds were that he was using to build his accusation on as he was looking at Joshua. Joshua the high priest is filthy. 
From, from what I read, the, the Hebrew word used in, in verse 3 to describe these scarments that, that Joshua has, that's the strongest expression in Hebrew for vile, loathsome filth. Now, I'm not enough of a Hebrew scholar to know if there's any other Hebrew word, but this word definitely means filth. It means excrement. It means, you know, just vile things. There's no doubt that Joshua was totally unfit to stand before the Lord. You, you may recall that the high priest underwent a very elaborate, condition, or elaborate process to cleanse himself ceremonially so he could represent the people before the Lord. He had to bathe himself. He had to put on these clean garments. And then he had to deal ceremonially with the, the sins of the nation by offering sacrifices for himself, for the people. There was this long process to, to symbolize that only that which is pure could come before the Lord. And here is the high priest standing before the Lord in filth, vile, disgusting filth. We can surmise that Satan is prepared to accuse Joshua for that reason. The, the guilt of the nation is what's being symbolized here, has contaminated their priest. He is so contaminated by the sin that is represented as filth, this covering him, and Satan's ready to say, this nation cannot stand before you, God. But the Lord would not allow Satan to enter that accusation. Instead, the Lord silences Satan with the pronouncement that he, God, is the one who chose Jerusalem. And he had chosen Joshua. He had plucked Joshua as a brand from the fire to, to represent the people because God had chosen this people as his own. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. It's his choice. Satan has nothing to say. Think about that for a moment. It's not that Satan's accusation was invalid. It's that it's irrelevant. The nation was sinful. The nation's sins had contaminated Joshua. But God had chosen the nation to be his. He, he did not choose them because they were pure, sinless people. He chose them because he chose them. The, the same could be said for you and I. Satan has the very same grounds upon which he could accuse any of us. We are stained by sin. We are undeserving of the privilege of standing before a holy God. We are filthy. The question is, does God let Satan utter that accusation against us? God did not allow Satan to bring an accusation against Joshua. Instead, in verses 4 and 5, once we see here the ground of the accusation, what we have is what I'm calling the gracious intervention. The gracious intervention. Since the Lord had chosen Joshua, the Lord intervenes. He issues an order for these filthy garments to be taken from Joshua, and for Joshua to be given festal robes. Now, you may not be familiar with the term festal. I'm trying to think if I've ever used it in a sentence and I couldn't come up with a time where I had, but it simply means that which is appropriate for celebration, that which is for a festival. So, nice robes. In, uh, something that's in complete contrast to the filthy garments. The, the filthy garments represented the, the sinfulness of the people, but the Lord states that he's taken away their sin. Your iniquity, he, he took it away. 
Remove the filthy garments. See, I've taken your iniquity away from you. That's how we know the, the filth represents the sin. And the Lord said, I took it away. For that reason, festal robes are appropriate because they symbolize the purity that the Lord has given Joshua by removing not only Joshua's sins, but the sins of the people because Joshua's high priest represents them. Zechariah sees this and, and he can't contain himself. He blurts out, let them put a clean turban on his head. In Exodus, the high priest had a turban that had a plate on the front of it. And the plate that the high priest wore said, Holy to the Lord. Whenever the high priest entered into the presence of the Lord. Well, the word that Zechariah uses for the turban here is a different Hebrew word than that's used in Exodus for the high priest's turban. So I'm just saying, we don't know for sure that he's picturing, Zechariah's picturing in his mind the turban that said, Holy to the Lord. But he certainly asking that let him be decked out fully as a high priest should be and, and let him look wonderful now. Let him be fully outfitted. He wants Joshua to have the full look of a completely clean representative for the people of God. In the final image we have conveyed there in verse 5 is of the angel of the Lord standing by, observing, directing, approving the entire transformation of of Joshua's appearance. Look at that final phrase, while the angel of the Lord was standing by. The angel of the Lord's in charge. Remember, all these people are doing his bidding. He's the one who said, remove the filthy garments, give them clean clothes. And now he's standing by, watching, making sure it's all done appropriately. After all, he's the one who had chosen to take away the people's iniquity. So now, he is personally ensuring that the spiritual purity that, that he had provided is represented through the physical purity of Joshua's apparel. Let's think for a moment what that would mean to the nation of Israel in Joshua's day. The nation had endured the exile for 70 years. The, the people had been destroyed. The city of Jerusalem had been destroyed. The temple had been destroyed. And, and all of that was because of sin. They knew that beyond a shadow of a doubt. The prophets had foretold it. The prophets had explained it afterwards. It's been repeated over and over. In those 70 years, all these people grew up understanding this happened because of sin. Now God is telling them that he has removed their iniquity. Their high priest has been cleansed by the Lord. Their high priest will be able to lead them in worship when the temple is rebuilt. Not only... Can the high priest go through the ceremonies when they have a temple? He can go through the ceremonies with the assurance that God will accept their worship. That's the message for the people. God is welcoming them back. Their sin has been removed. For us, this is a great picture of God's grace. The Lord chose to remove every stain of sin and replace it with purity instead. Not because it was deserved, but because the Lord took it upon himself to intervene. The Lord took it upon himself to provide. He did it for Joshua. He did it for Israel. He did it for us. God's gracious cleansing. His gracious cleansing of Israel. That's what we see in the first five verses here. A beautiful picture of God at work. God's grace alone ensures Israel's destiny. 
in the last five verses of the chapter, this gracious cleansing is followed now by a permanent cleansing for Israel. God's permanent cleansing. The vision shifts outward from focusing on Joshua, the high priest staying there, to an expansion and explanation directly from the Lord of what this all means. Let's read it, verse 6. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house, and also have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends, you who are sitting in front of you, indeed, they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring my servant the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts. I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. In verse 6, we, we have the word admonished. The angel of the Lord admonished Joshua. Well, that word simply means that the Lord gave a charge to Joshua, an exhortation. So let's consider the element of what the angel said first to Joshua, Joshua's exhortation here in, in verses 6 and 7. If we look carefully at the charge that Joshua was given here in, in verse 7, it contains two conditions and three results that, that come if those conditions are met. It, it's, it's that kind of a proposition. If you do this and this, then this, this, and this will happen. Two conditions, three results. Condition one, if you walk in my ways. The idea of walking in God's way, that's, that's common in the Old Testament. It's a very familiar phraseology. For example, in 1 Kings 3.14, God charged Solomon, If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments, as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. Psalm 119.1, How blessed are those who weigh as blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Psalm 128.1, How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his way. And we could just keep expanding that list further and further. It's a very common expression in the Old Testament, to walk in my ways. The, the point of the expression is one of, of, of personal and practical righteousness. God expects that his people will do what he has told them to do, and they will avoid doing what he has told them not to do. Personal, practical, individually, do what God has said to do. And God expects that they will be done faithfully. Not just once, not just twice, but ongoing, faithfully. Well, many generations of priests prior to the exile failed to execute their duties as priests. They were not faithful. They were not um, personal in their practical holiness. They failed completely. Frequently, they even led the people to worship idols and false gods. Well, Joshua is to do his duty to lead in the worship of God properly. He is to lead the people as high priest. That's condition one. If you perform my service. That simply means God expects Joshua to perform those priestly duties. Not only to keep himself pure, but to do what God has called him to do. Do them faithfully. To do what was not done by those previous generations. 
Now, assuming Joshua does these two things, that he personally walks in God's way and he performs his service as high priest, then God says three results. One, Joshua will govern God's house. In other words, he'll have charge of the temple. Remember, the temple's still under construction. They've really it sat for 15 years before they dusted off the foundation that had been laid and they've been working on it for five months. It's not close to finished yet, but, but God's already looking beyond the, the effort to the, the final results. And Joshua, you're to have ownership over this. You're to govern the temple. Clearly, that promise implies that their efforts to build it will succeed. Two, Joshua will have charge of the courts surrounding the temple. That the idea is that Joshua will have the task of protecting the surrounding courts, keep those areas from being polluted in, by, by sin or idolatry. Again, that was one of the great failures of, of many of the high priests prior to the exile if they allowed uh, altars and, and items of worship to be set up to idols in the very courts of the temple of God. Joshua was to have charge over their courts. God entrusts Joshua with that important duty. And then three, Joshua has promised free access among those who are standing here. Obviously, the angel of the Lord is not alone. There, there must be other angelic beings around him. We, we saw back in the first vision that there were other angels that were reporting to him. Remember, they'd gone around the, the earth and found the earth at peaceful conditions and brought that message back. Well, now there's some standing there that he's told to remove the filthy garments and give Joshua clean garments. So there's other angels around and coming to and fro before the angel of the Lord, and Joshua is going to have access to the Lord, ready access, just like these servants of the Lord have. Joshua, too, will be able to enter his presence. He'll be able to perform his priestly functions because the Lord will allow him to come into his presence. I don't know if we can really comprehend how awesome this last privilege is that the freedom to enter the presence of a holy God and offer him worship. We do this every week. Every week, every Sunday we gather and we spiritually enter his presence. Yet the only reason we're allowed to do that is because he has cleansed us from iniquity. The righteousness of Christ alone enables us to stand before him to be accepted and welcomed. I, I fear that often we just go through the motions of worship and we don't stop to contemplate the magnitude of what we are doing, the, the privilege that, that we're exercising, the, the grace that we're enjoying. We come into God's presence. The Lord grants us free access to stand among those surrounding him so that we can offer our worship. Joshua has given that promise, and it's a glorious promise for the high priest that will stand for the people once more. But we are all high priests according to the New Testament. Having given the personal exhortation to Joshua, then the Lord goes on to explain that, that there's more to it than just this. He explains to Zechariah that what's happening here with Joshua has far greater significance. Consider Joshua's symbolism. He says it very direct. Joshua, in verse 8, you and your friends are a symbol. 
This is the first indication that, that Joshua had priestly companions with him. We, we haven't had any indication of that in the vision that Jack, Zechariah has been focused on Joshua, but apparently Joshua has priestly companions there with him. He's the high priest, but there's other priests that came back from the exile as well. It's also the first indication that this vision, like the earlier one, is dealing with things that go far beyond the Israel of Zechariah's day, it's looking far into the future. Joshua is serving as a symbol of things yet to come. Joshua and the others are experiencing this gracious cleansing from the Lord, but that cleansing is linked to the coming of one who will be the sin remover himself. It's linked to the Messiah who's been promised. Three messianic titles are, are used in verses 8 and 9. My servant, the branch, and the stone all three of these are messianic titles. The, the first two, my servant and the branch, those are very well-known titles in the Old Testament for the Messiah. The, the stone is less common than, than the first two, but it may have been linked to the familiar image of the cornerstone. Isaiah 28 uh, talks about the cornerstone that will come, so that may have been the linkage that Zechariah would have. After all, Joshua... And the others were building the temple off a cornerstone. You know, they're, they're early in the construction. The foundation's been laid. The foundation begins with cornerstone. That stone is prominent in their effort. So maybe there's the link to Isaiah 28's cornerstone that is truly understood as the Messiah, for even as early as Zechariah would have. Well, anyway, this stone, along with the branch, the Messiah, this stone, we're told, has seven eyes. That, that's a common symbol for omniscience in the Bible. And we saw that when we went through Ezekiel together, for example. And, and so when you put this together, the, the stone, the, the branch, the Messiah, the seven eyes, the connections are all clear that this is pointing to the messianic expectation Israel has. The angel of the Lord is pointing to the promised Messiah of Israel and he's connecting Joshua symbolically to that day when the Messiah will come. He even uses that code word, that day, which frequently in prophecy points all the way down the road of history to the time the Messiah will come. So what is the promise? Well, it's threefold. Again, three, three promises. First, I will engrave an inscription on it. I'm just going to be blunt here. I have no idea what that means. The, the commentators are filled with speculation, so you can find all kinds of people that, that claim to know more, but as I read, I'm like, yeah, I mean, you're just pulling things out. For example, we, we know that the, the Messiah that Zechariah here is, is hearing about, we know that that Messiah is the one we call Christ and that the Messiah will come when Christ is returned. Revelation 19.12 tells us that when Christ returns, he has name written on him, which no one knows. Could this be the name that Zechariah sees engraved in the stone? A name's written on Christ. Here, Christ is the stone. It's engraved. People, commentators, make that kind of connection. Do you see the link? I don't see any reason why it could not be that. But I also don't see any reason that indicates it is that. I'm comfortable simply saying, I don't know what the inscription is. But it's promised there will be an inscription. Fortunately, we, we do not have to have the same kind of ignorance with the second part of the promise. Zechariah told, secondly, that the Messiah will move all the sin of the land in a single day. That we can understand. 
When the Messiah comes, all the sin of the land will be removed in a single day. In fact, if you think about it, it's easy to see how this vision we have of Joshua symbolizes that event. The removal of his filthy garments and the replacement with pure ones, that points to this future day when the Messiah, who is the ultimate high priest, will do all of that in one day. Now, I do want to caution us to use precision when we think about this aspect of the promise. That the single day that the Lord is promising here is not the day our Lord went to the cross. On that day, we could say he did the advance work for this future day that's being promised. He provided the grounds for the removal of sin, but Christ did not remove Israel's iniquity on that day. All we have to do is watch daily news to see this is the case. That the promised land of Israel is filled with sin. There's sinful nations encroaching upon it. There's atrocities being committed in that land against Israel. And Israel is never fully without sin in any of its responses these days. In fact, we need to be clear. that The nation that, that we call Israel is not the future promised nation of Israel in the Scripture. They're part of the ethnic group that formed that nation, but the future promised nation of Israel is all of ethnic Israel collected together. So the nation that we currently call Israel, that's a portion of Israel, but the bulk of Israelites, the bulk of Jews, if you will, they're scattered throughout the world still. The nation of Israel in the Bible is still in the dispersia. It's still scattered. But the Messiah will come, and that scattered group will coalesce and he will govern them when he returns he will form that final nation that is the day that this promise is referring to the day when christ returns on that day he will remove the iniquity from the land and allow things to go on and i've lost my last sheet of notes so excuse me a sec i bet they're down here to be continued i hope soon they, they were left laying on my folder. The good news is that means I'm on the last page of my notes. So the entire nation will, will serve as a priestly function on that day for the entire world. When, when the Messiah collects them there, they are the, the nation of priests for the world. Third, we, we also need to recognize when that day comes, the third promise here is that that nation under the Messiah will experience peace and prosperity. That, that's the vision of the final verse there, that each person sitting under his, his vine and fig tree, that, that symbolizes in the Old Testament prosperity. Until that day comes, Joshua serves as a symbol. He's a representative of Israel. He, he's a representative of Israel as a priestly people, a cleansed people, a reinstated people. But he's pointing to a time that Israel will experience a final permanent cleansing. The vision here of him, the high priest, Joshua, cleansed by the angel of the Lord, that that serves as a symbol of this glorious future for the nation. A future given by grace. God's grace alone ensures Israel's destiny. God's permanent cleansing here of Israel is, is presented in this final half of our chapter. His grace. God's grace alone, that, that ensures Israel's destiny. We, we've seen the promise here of God's gracious cleansing of Israel as well as God's permanent cleansing. 
What a glorious truth for the nation. As they were struggling through their, their reconstruction process, wondering about their, their position before God, they're given this vision of God's gracious embracement of them with the assurance that his grace alone ensures their destiny. For us, that vision really should remind us of his grace for us as well. This should be an exciting, beautiful, wonderful picture. Like, like Israel, it is God's grace alone that ensures our destiny. There is nothing that we could do to, to give ourselves a positive destiny. We cannot save ourselves. Our, our sin covered us in filthy garments. We were clothed in the most vile of filth, unfit to stand anywhere close to the presence of God. But God, that, that marvelous, unfathomable intervention of God, but God moved. He intervened. He intervened in grace. He cleansed us through, through the simple faith and the work of Jesus Christ, and now he promises that there will come a day that all iniquity will be fully removed and we will stand completely, permanently cleansed. It's grace, all of it. And that alone ensures our destiny. So let's rejoice over that fact as we recognize that God here promises that his grace alone ensures Israel's destiny. Let's rejoice that we are right there as well, insured by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it has been to work through this passage this evening, to see this beautiful, glorious picture of grace, and to rejoice knowing that we, too, are recipients of your amazing grace. You intervened for us. You chose us, not because of anything that we had to offer, not because we were anything other than mired in filth, and yet you chose us and cleansed us so that we can now enter your presence and worship you. What a joy it is to do that in the name of our Savior, the one who cleansed us with his blood, in whose name we also address you now in prayer, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.